Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company and want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.bc. The title sponsor for this season of Origins is Carta. This season is also supported by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Carta simplifies how startups and investors manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. They also offer fund administration, where you can see real-time data in the Carta platform and work with their team of experienced fund accountants. We've been happy customers with Carta for a few years now, and we're thrilled to have them as our title sponsor. Go to carta.com slash notation to get 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SBB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form both Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Grammy award-winning and billboard chart-topping artist-producer duo, The Chainsmokers, comprised of Alex Paul and Drew Taggart, have evolved into a dominating musical force with a diverse repertoire of songs that have led them to become one of music's hottest recording artists. Using their ability to identify trends, Drew and Alex have built a track record as seasoned angel investors. Following their passion for supporting other brilliant entrepreneurs, they joined forces with a seasoned investment team led by tech investors and entrepreneurs Milan Koch and Jeffrey Evans to form a new venture capital firm called Mantis. Mantis has a broad investment mandate while supporting the most innovative companies across consumer tech, media and entertainment, fintech and distributed ledger, and other emerging technologies. You can learn more about their firm at mantisvc.com. Sweet. Let's do this. This is probably the most unusual episode of Origins we'll be recording maybe ever. So um, thank you guys so much for doing this, Alex and Drew. And thanks, John, for setting it up. But really excited to, to have you guys and to chat for the next 45 minutes. Hell yeah. Excited to be here, buddy. Actually, my friend Robin was like, you guys got to do this. He's a big fan. Um, he's one of our advisors. So, <laughs> so I think uh, where, where we should start is just a little bit about you guys. You know, you can start as early or as recent as you want, but um, a little bit just about you guys, where you guys grew up, how you guys met, how you got into music, that sort of thing. Drew, you should definitely give the give the narrative, but just to tell a little bit about ourselves personally before everything. I mean, I'm from New York originally, born and raised there, uh, went to NYU and lived there for probably like six or seven years after that. After realizing I wasn't going to make the MBA at a young age, uh, I realized that I thought I wanted to be an art dealer to follow in the footsteps of my dad, uh, who actually passed away when I was 13. And I was, you know, just enchanted with the art world and the business side of it. Went to school for that and uh, in business. 
And kind of as a side hustle, as most college kids do, you know, I got into promotion around the city in different nightlife venues, Mm -hmm. which was really exciting. I learned a lot about, you know, marketing and networking and friendship and, you know, that that side of the business. And actually visited my sister in England one year. She went to school there uh, for college and I fell in love with dance music, like majorly, just head over heels. Um, I couldn't get enough of the scene out in Bristol, UK. When was this? Was this like 90s? No, this is like... Yeah. yeah, this is like 2009 or something okay. or eight. Okay. And I went back to the US and I just couldn't find it, what the scene they had created over there. And I was like so frustrated by that. And this is before dance music really blew up right. in the US and yeah. globally. Um, so I took it upon myself. I was like, listen, I'm going to learn to DJ and I'm going to throw the parties myself and play the music that I want to hear. And that was kind of what I what I did, you know, around college, right around right after. You know, and it was like you making a little money on the side, but it was by no means like a, a living. Yeah. And I was also as a receptionist in an art gallery in Chelsea, literally the worst receptionist ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I worked at this gallery for close to five years doing that. And that's when I met Drew. And, you know, at that point in my life, I wasn't getting any younger. I was probably about 28 years old. I was like spending half my life DJing at night. And then the other half behind this desk answering phones and, and giving tours to school kids in Chelsea. And I really like enjoyed that, but it just, I didn't feel, I became, began to feel disenchanted with the art world. I just felt like it was such a niche club of people, you know, the upper echelon, super wealthy. And, you know, and, and the art itself, I just wasn't connected with the same way I was growing up. The stuff like the, the you know, the, the really famous artists that we all see in the museums today. So when I met Drew, it was kind of like a do or die moment where it was like, all right, well, I'm not getting any younger. I really want to pursue music and try to try this, you know what I mean? And see how it goes. And that's when Drew walks into my life and the chain smokers really took the next steps. That's awesome. One, one, one tidbit, I, I also grew up in New York City and uh, I was a dance DJ in high school. Oh, nice. And then I, I, I gave it I gave it up in college. Maybe the worst decision I ever made. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was DJing at like 13, 14, at like sweet 16s and bar mitzvahs and, you know, all the, the high school dances. But I, my, my dormitory proctor was like, nope, you can't bring this stuff in. So I went to boarding school in college. It was like, that was it. And I gave it up. And luckily, we yeah. turned back to it. Yeah. That's cool. I DJed uh, Tuesday nights on Smith Street in Brooklyn. Oh, word. <laughs> Way ahead of your time. Yeah, so um, it's funny. It's funny just hearing, you know, Alex is growing. It's like so similar to to the way that I grew up. I mean, I grew up in a very different place. I grew up in Maine, where there really is a, a much smaller, almost non-existent music scene, or at least one that is in the genres that I was interested in. Um, and I I grew up there. And then when I was uh, fifteen, my mom really encouraged me to do like an exchange thing, which is actually something most kids do in college. But it was a my school for some reason. I public went to public school, and they had a really great exchange program. So when I was fifteen. I wanted to learn how to speak Spanish. And so I went to Argentina and, uh, when I was in Argentina, you know, I thought, you know, I thought I was going to be in Buenos Aires, but I ended up being in, in, uh, in this town outside of Bariloche in the middle of the Andes mountains. So I, <laughs> I like left Maine to get out of Maine and got put in basically the Maine of Argentina, uh, which mm-hmm. was very beautiful, but, uh, not what I expected. And it obviously ended up being a very like life-changing experience. And, and, you know, over making Spanish, uh, uh, learning Spanish, you know, the biggest thing that stuck with me after is we would go to the clubs, which was obviously not a thing that I was able to do where I was from and because of the age that I was in Maine. And uh, that's when I heard Daft Punk for the first time and 
the beginning of mm. David Guetta and uh, Trent Muller and uh, these DJs. And I heard this music and I was like, what is this? Yeah, no one was listening to that type of, yeah. those type of records yeah. um, back in the States. And when I went home, you know, everyone was still into like, I think Lil Wayne was having his like heyday there, which I'm also a massive Lil Wayne fan. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd heard this, been exposed to this other scene, similar to what Alex saw when he was in Bristol that I was super passionate about, um, kind of on my lonesome and spent, you know, did all this research and this is before there were a million YouTube videos about how to make dance music. Um, we just read forums and, you know, found this program called Ableton, which we still use today and spent every free second I had just on the program mm -hmm. trying to, to figure out how to make those sounds that I had heard in South America. And um, that uh, lasted through, yeah, you know, all like that was the end of high school. And then I ended up going to Syracuse. I got in very luckily off the wait list to this music business program called the Bandier program. And uh, that was my first exposure to like what, the, you know, I didn't even know that there was a music business, the business behind the music. And um, when I was there, you know, I, you know, took a more practical approach and looked something more on the industry side, maybe a manager or working at a label but I was still producing all day, every day. And I loved it. And at the time, the genre that I had discovered in South America was all of a sudden starting to like just blow up in the United States out of nowhere. You know, and that was the beginning of like Avicii and Swedish House Mafia and those guys really rising to prominence. Um, and David Guetta, who I, I remember listening to his early records was becoming like a, you know, everyone was listening to it. And he was collaborating with all these American artists. And I, it was something that I had a history in already. So I kind of doubled down and was like, you know, maybe I can be a part of this scene. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was putting out stuff on my SoundCloud, not a lot of traction, you know, was lucky enough to meet some promoters that were at college kids that put me on opening shows with some of these guys, but nothing ever that significant. When I finished college, I was like, I'm just going to give myself this like final summer to just see what I can make happen. I had been interning at Interscope Records uh, my senior year. And, you know, I kind of got my first insight into the music business. And, you know, I had some really supportive people at Interscope, like just encourage me and give me remix opportunities and enough to keep me going for that summer. And then at the end of it, when I was kind of facing getting a more practical job, um, I met Alex and Alex, you know, yeah. Alex had all these DJ gigs in, in New York city. And I had, uh, this, you know, production experience. I wasn't good. I wasn't that great of a producer, but you know, I had like, you know, a million plays on one of my sound SoundCloud songs, which was super cool. And, uh, you know, we just kind of met and we bonded over the, having a lot of the same influences and we literally met one night and the next day I was like, I guess I'll just come over and we'll start. And we haven't stopped since that was about eight years ago. That's awesome. That's awesome. What, what did the collaboration look like when you started? Like, what does that, you know, I guess for a non or for someone that's not as deep into the, you know, creation of the music, like, what did that mean for you guys to be collaborating on like a you know, more regular daily basis? Um, I think, well, I mean, we didn't really know exactly at the beginning, you know, it was like, all right, well, let's just commit ourselves to it. At least promise ourselves that, you know what I mean? And do everything we can. So for us, it was like coming over to my apartment or Drew's apartment. We would switch every like four months because we would just get sick of our little spaces <laughs> that we had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we would, you know, come over at 10 a.m., no matter whether it was the middle of winter or whatever. And we'd sit there for eight hours and, you know, we would kind of just in the beginning, it was, it was literally like almost, I think we were copying like our favorite people out there. And we made like a, a couple of little original-ish songs, but, you know, th there was nothing like unique to us about them so much, even if they were, you know, well-produced or whatever. 
And I remember we played this show uh, for Time Flies, uh, who Cal's still a good friend of ours in res. They totally sold it out. We sold no tickets, but they sold it out. Um, we opened for them and it was like Terminal 5. It was like 3,000 people. Never played a show that big. That was like a show show, you know, not like a club play. Period. That was our first ever show together. And you taught me how to DJ like three hours before. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we were like, holy shit, this was incredible. Like the feeling we got, we were like, I don't know how we got, you know, we were even more inspired. We're like, I don't know what we're going to do, but we need to figure out what that is. And I remember Drew was in love with this uh, band, Sigur Ross, as, as was I. And we, yeah. uh, we were like, why don't we remix one of his songs? Like there's, we didn't have any stems, but there was enough like open space in the track where we could, we could just add our instrumentation on top of it. And we did that. And it was like, that was the, that was the first like kind of aha moment that we had because it felt like we were finally making original dance music that had its own edge to it. That was truly unique in the whole space. Yeah, at the time, like uh, indie music wasn't being remixed. Right, this song started to have legs. It went. There's this uh, blog aggregator called Hype Machine. Yeah, I was actually going to say I think that's where I first listened to you guys many, many years ago on Hype Machine. Yeah, at the time, you know, Hype Machine was full of you know a bunch of artists that became really big bands that we all know today. But it was kind of the beginning yeah. of like the kind of the first viral chart of the internet. Uh, yeah, and Alex and I would go on Hype Machine and it was all these artists that we love that were in a genre that wasn't being like remixed into the dance music world, but it was the stuff that we loved growing up. And uh, we had, after the whole Yonzi, uh, Sigur Ross remix revelation went number one on Hype Machine. We were like, maybe this is, could be like our thing while we like hone mm-hmm. production shops and, and build towards having original music. So, um, you know, this is kind of where our entrepreneur side came in. We would go on Hype Machine and there'd be, you know, the chart of 50 to 100 artists. And um, we would send e- emails to them, begging them to let us do a remix, um, the ones that we really liked. So we were like asking, these songs were already trending on the internet. Right. And then, you know, one out of 50 would say yes. And we'd spend the entire week in Alex's apartment just trying to make a cool remix out of it. And then what we did was uh, Alex kind of, figured out a way to not the game the system but the best way to build a big promotion tool for an unknown artist which was going on the the on hype machine and looking at every blog that the aggregator combed and he would find out every blog he'd make a spreadsheet he put out every person that wrote at that blog um their email address and i kid you not every week when we'd have a new remix which was pretty much weekly he would email, send 500 personalized emails. And these were hysterical. Wow. Like the, he was totally taking the piss out of any normal promotional email. Just ended up forming these really great relationships with all these kids that were posting on these blogs. And uh, to the point where we had a direct line to every blog on the internet um, for a minute. And, uh, you know, so we're coming to them with these great remixes of songs that were already trending, which was very, you know, postable content for them. And then they, they thought we were funny. And so, you know, we ended, that ended up parlaying into like, I think 30 number ones on Hype Machine, which was the beginning of our getting our fee from a couple hundred bucks in a nightclub in New York city to, you know, a thousand dollars and being able to go to a couple colleges around the country. And I'd say that was our first big, like, okay, we, we could, we're doing something now. That's a brilliant hack. Yeah. <laughs> that is brilliant. I mean, you got to think about like the people that get those emails all day long from the labels and PR people that are so generic. And we were just like, you know, let's try taking a different approach and get their attention. 
And that was kind of the whole, and the music was good. You know I mean? We were, we were, we were attaching yeah. our names to artists like Tuplo and Phoenix and Tudor cinema club that already had fan bases. So our thought was like, at very least, like if you see Phoenix, you'll be in, the Phoenix fans will like, I'm going to click on this cause I like Phoenix. And then they'll be mm-hmm. like, all right, that remix was sick. I'm going to you know, keep following the chain smokers along this journey. And we kind of did that with all these different artists until like Drew said, we had enough of falling to like, build up and along the way it was really just about progress for us like we weren't looking for that big break moment where it was like suddenly oh my god we're suddenly famous and whatever it was very much like all right we're getting a hundred a thousand plays on our page now we're getting fifteen thousand and so on you know what i mean and that progress is always how we've mapped our career because it's like those little steps are what count yeah i mean i have so many thoughts i mean one just hype machine was really truly a gem yeah. Of, a, of a service in the early days. I've, I've met uh, Anthony a number of times over the years and he did such a good job with that. But two, my other thought is just like, like any startup that we work with or, you know, you guys work with, and I want, I do want to talk about uh, the venture fund. There's always that challenge of like, how do you just get your first hundred, 500,000 users, customers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And they're doing it in ways that are not necessarily super, super scalable. Mm-hmm. Like that's basically exactly what you were doing yeah. in the early days. It sounds like for, for, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that's become a huge tool for us now and with our VC because, you know, we're, we're going out to founders, you know, I think they identify with us in a real way and we identify with them because it's like, we, we have had that struggle yeah. and, you know, and that's such an important thing to see in someone else. And, you know, cause you really empathize with them and know what they're going through. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious, like when you felt like, you maybe turned a corner. When did you have to stop sending those like 500 emails every day when you started a remix and when you just start feeling like maybe the pull of the market a little bit more like the pull of the fan? I don't think it ever stopped. I think it just changed format hmm. in terms of like we are, I think why we've, you know, I, in addition to a sex, we've had a successful music career um, and why we'll have a successful fund and whatever business we decide to start is we understand that that level of doing the grind work that, like you said, isn't scalable is necessary in anything that you start from the beginning. And so right. the realization was we are, you know, as soon as we started putting out song, our, our first big single, we're, I'm also going to forget about this song selfie that we put out because it doesn't really stay in line with the rest of our story. But um, we, uh, we put out the song called Roses and Roses kind of went out and we were with uh we had an independent label i believe at the time um we were kind of signed through our managers jv deal with uh sony and that format of grinding and sending you know creating relationships uh with all these bloggers then transferred to, to radio and us flying around the country and before every show going to like four radio stations and doing interviews and just the realization of like you know no one gets where they are without a team and support and good partners. And, you know, realizing that even though we, at this time, Alex was definitely still sending emails, but we were also then forming relationships with the radio and realizing, giving something, something to promote and giving them content and, and making sure that they have what they needed to, to get behind, a, behind us in, in addition to the music. Yeah. And there were definitely like scary moments. Like I remember when we were like, we're not going to do remixes anymore. And it was like, that was like a conscious decision. 
and, and we've literally stuck to that to, to, since that conversation. But it was just like, we need to, if we're going to, we have to spend, whatever we do, we really have to dive in head first. You know what I mean? You can't, it was like what I was doing as a receptionist and DJing at night. We were doing, trying to do two things. It's like, we either have to go all the way on original music and that's what people know us for, or we don't. We keep remixing forever and we're just always going to be someone else's you know, attachment to their song. Right. Um, and then I remember also our manager calling us and being like, we have to stop posting to SoundCloud. And I was like, what? We have built our entire following wow. off of SoundCloud. And he's like, it's Spotify. Like Spotify is the future. And that's where people are going to be streaming music. It's going to be the same thing. You know, and I was just like, I was so terrified because I was, you know, it, it was so crazy to me to kind of abandon something that had gotten us to where right. we were. But it's those kind of also drastic decisions and important moments that like really propelled us forward. And that was like, thank God, you know, Drew said no more remixes. And thank God he was like, trust me, Spotify is going to be important. <laughs> I mean, it's also just interesting to think about like over the course of the last 10 or 11 years of your career, how much has changed in the technology, you know, piece of, of music yeah. and how much has changed in the business of music. And I guess you guys have kind of, survived and then thrived through a number of those technologies. Well, it's important. Like actually one thing that's worth mentioning is that, you know, I mean, you're old enough to know this, but like traditionally there was the artist album cycle, you know, you release an album, you tour right. it for a year and then you disappear for however long until the next thing's done. Right. And, you know, for dance music, it was so much different. There were so many artists in the category, People, the fans were like, there was, they were so hungry for music all the time. And there was so much, there were so many, so many shows and opportunities to play it. And we were just like, I don't want to just put out an album and have to disappear for a year and then work on music that doesn't feel relevant. Like, I want to keep, like, this comes from the remixes. Like, I want to put out a song that we made last week, tomorrow, and then move on to the next project. And everything is going to reflect exactly what we're doing right now and what the trends are and what's happening. And, and so we went to Spotify and Apple and we're like, how do you guys feel about doing this rolling album idea where we only release singles? you know, on whatever timetable we set and then we roll it into an album at the end. So, you know, you do have a chapter of music that you can return to, yeah. but that totally flipped the whole industry on its head because now we are feeding our fan base with like an IV drip of music all the time. And we weren't giving them the opportunity to say, oh, Chainsmokers are gone. This guy's my favorite artist now. And then come back and be like, we're back. And they'll be like, eh, I'm not so interested in you anymore. This guy's my favorite. So we kind of, we did that for like seven years basically. And it allowed us to kind of be omnipresent all the time, which has its drawbacks as well. But it, but it also like kept all of our fans engaged and we built such an amazing, you know, team of fans that, and friends that support us because they never, you know, they were always getting music and that was a huge, and now artists do that all the time. It's literally like the gold yeah. standard. Yeah, that's really cool. Drew, you know, you worked at Interscope for, uh, I guess, a summer. And so obviously you had some interest in like the business of, of music as well. I'm, I'm curious, maybe just to, if you guys could just speak to, you know, how you basically have grown the business around you and, you know, added to your team and yeah, think about like maybe leveled up or, or maybe some surprises along the ways in terms of how you've evolved, like the business piece of what you do over time. Sure. There's a bunch of things to that, a bunch of components. One thing that we have kind of adopted almost accidentally in the beginning, that's, some, that's a, what we learned from and how, how well it worked out for us was 
we find people that don't really have, we're not too concerned about track record. When we find people to come work on our team or work for one of our businesses, yeah. uh, we just want to see that, you know, they're whip smart, they're clever, and they're in a do or die situation and they're willing to work super hard. And I feel like, you know, when we were first coming up and before we had a booking agency, we wanted the most popular booking agency, you know, that had, you know, the flashiest artists on it. And uh, we assumed they'd have all the connections. And every time we came to a decision like that, whether it was our manager or our business manager or, or our lawyer even, um, or um, you know, obviously our agent, we ended up going with people that were in that position where they're like, this is, I, I need to make this work. And I'm, and they're smart enough to figure it out. Yeah. And now we have this team, every single person on our team started at square one in there with us and in their respective industries. And I, I think that's the best way to do it. You never run into a situation where you have someone that's un, uh, unmotivated or jaded. Um, and it really gives people full ownership over the project as it's like intrinsically linked to their, their own careers. Um, so that's definitely something that, you know, we were working with the people that wanted to work with us in the beginning. And we really learned that that's a, that's a theme that we want to continue through every business that we start. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and certainly has like parallels to founders thinking about hiring decisions on their, on their own teams. Yeah. La- last music question is, uh, you know, you mentioned Terminal 5 as maybe this moment, like, holy shit moment. I'm curious over the last number of years, what were like one or two other moments where you're like, wow, I, I can't believe that this is a thing that's happening. Yeah, Given yeah. I, was, I was a receptionist at the Chelsea yeah. Art Gallery. I say, I say that every time out loud before I board a private jet. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even kidding you. I scream it. It's like my, it's a little tradition. So you never lose sight of how great life can get. But I, I mean, Drew would totally agree with me on this moment because it's the answer we've always given and it's the truth. We had been touring in Europe for like two weeks opening up festivals during the daytime slots, playing like really small, crappy venues all over the, you know, European continent. And it was fun. We were having a blast, but like we were by no means like big time at that moment. You know what I mean? We were like the lowest on the low of the totem pole getting whatever we could. We, I remember we would land at like European airports. We wouldn't have a cell phone plan in Europe. It'd take us like two hours to get to the airport. I mean, to the hotels. Then we'd have to like walk to the venue show up like literally at the front door, like, Hey, we're the guys. And they'd be like, where the hell have you been? You know, it's like all these things. And meanwhile, our song roses that Drew mentioned earlier was like low key, like spreading like wildfire in the dance music community um, in the U S and we had no idea. And so we returned back from Europe to play Lollapalooza, um, the Perry stage, which was a huge moment, like to get that look, you know, for the festival was incredible. And I mean, shout out to them for always believing in us. But, you know, we were thought we were just going to play like our daytime set. And what ended up happening was there was a thunderstorm. So all the sets ended up getting pushed back like three hours. So our like 2 p.m. or set ended up becoming like a 5 p.m. sunset set. So now we had like a really prime time slot, actually. And we played this edit of Cheerleader, Omi's Cheerleader, that goes into Roses. And there must have been 50,000 people there or something like that. And the song drops and it's like everyone explodes it, you know what i mean it's a moment that neither of us have experienced from a live show perspective in our entire career yeah and it's all captured on video our videographer rory was there who's like our best friend and he has this literally like he has the whole thing on this 15 second clip and it's just like gives me chills every time i watch it because it's like it shows the power of how people connect with music 
how it just, you know, music is like, yeah, you can put every promotion plan behind a song, but ultimately like it's people sharing your song that changes the course of the success. And here was that, here was an example of that people like falling in love with something that we made, you know, that was totally ours and we loved and, you know, we were eating shit sandwiches for the last two weeks in Europe and came back and it was like, this could be the future, you know what I mean? And that was just, it was amazing. That's really awesome. Thank God for that thunderstorm. Yeah. <laughs> I actually cried during the thunderstorm because they were like, you might get canceled. And I was like, I think I, I, think I cried. <laughs> yeah. So switching gears just a sec. So it sounds like you guys have been pretty savvy on the, on the technological front for a long time, um, particularly around like distributing and building, you know, your own music and, and business. Um, yeah, when, when did you decide to start investing in in tech companies? As soon as the opportunity arose, um, it was something that we had been passionate about. I mean, if you look at through 2008 till now, there have been so many incredible companies started. Um, and a lot of those founders were, we got to get to know and meet at shows mm. and we're still friends with today. And, and some of them are now involved in our fund. But, you know, it kind of was the first opening open door into to what, this whole other scene of people that are um, creating things that are going to forward what culture is um, in a very different way and make things for society and our generation. And that was always something that was extremely exciting to us. And so I'd say probably three years into our career when people started to know who we were and people were interested in having us you know, on their cap table, we started our first venture into, into the whole startup world. Mm. And um, we loved it. And we got to meet, we've met so many incredible people that are shaping, shaping the companies of, of tomorrow and making things that are so relevant to our generation, making the world a better place for people. So, I mean, I think most people that are probably listening to this podcast are, are, have had that realization and, and decided that's somewhere that they want to be. And, uh, and yeah, you know, we realized a couple of years ago, we had in, invested in 20 companies and a lot of them we had, we had really helped and we had a lot of relatability to founders and we were able to get ourselves also into some really good deals because of all of those factors. And, um, you know, we came to this point where like, we should turn this into a business and I think we have a shot at starting a fund. And so we did. Yeah. What were a few of the early investments and what got, what got you excited about them? Yeah. I mean, one of our first investments was this company Ember. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of them. It's essentially like a heated mug technology where you can control how cold and hot your coffee is. It's very like Apple sleek design product. Um, and I remember when we got it and it was like, I don't know, you know what I mean? Kind of feeling <laughs> you're like, I do love this yeah. technology. I, <laughs> I love the founder, but like, I've never really given money to something like this right. or anything for that matter. But we talked with the founder and we like the product was awesome. And, you know, we, we, he knew what he needed to do in order to succeed. And we were like, all right, like, let's try this out. And to this day, you know, it might be one of our better investments in general because, you know, he got into every Starbucks. He's like one of the best product sellers on Amazon, gift sellers, you know, and then he's now pivoting into maternal and healthcare using the, you know, the patented technology that he created. So now there's a whole other, you know, market for him, for the, for the product. And, it's been incredible. It was so incredible to watch this company grow over the last probably six years or five years. Like that's kind of what, how we became obsessed with it because it was like, it was a lot like watching a child, you know, like grow into something amazing, incredible. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that was really exciting for us. And, you know, like you said, it just, it, we got obsessed and we've been doing it ever since. So, so tell me about the fund. It's called Mantis. My understanding is it uh, just was recently raised, but I'm curious 
how you've kind of thought about going from, you know, angel investing to actually, you know, building a, a, a proper fund mm -hmm. and what that means, what that means for your guys' involvement, what that means for the strategy. Would love to. Yeah. Would love to. Hear. Um, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in there. I think I'll let Drew handle some of it. But you know, so much of what we've done over the chain smokers career is all about forging relationships, networks. Hospitality is a huge part of what we've done. You know, whether that's hosting people pre-show or after-show or our fans, uh, and creating you know a space for people to enjoy themselves, but also meet other people that are interesting. And that was always something that was just the cornerstone of, like, of who we were as people. And we've done that from the smallest shows to the biggest shows. And, you know, through that, it was like what Drew said, you know, after doing a lot of investing, you kind of begin to realize that you're, you know, you're getting allocated looks at deals that other people aren't getting, you know, you're adding value to deals. And, you know, when we decided to institutionalize it, it was basically a component of all of those things together, realizing that, you know, we have this amazing network of people, you know, the Chainsmokers brand equity in of itself and all the relationships we forged through that could really help be helpful to a lot of founders out there. But also like there's a lot of investors that we know and people that are wealthy that don't have the same access and, and interest in the same way that we do in this space. And we can create value for them and as well. You know, that was really exciting to us because we learned quickly through doing bad endorsement deals and bad sponsorships or bad partnerships that like you can't really succeed in areas that aren't intrinsic to who you are as people and what your brand is. So you know, it doesn't, it never felt like we were stepping it while it felt like a radical move in some ways in terms of like doing this compared to making music in a studio, it didn't really feel a lot different than what we've been doing our entire career, which is just connecting people and helping people succeed and, and working our asses off. So it was kind of like a really exciting challenge to, to rally all these, these great relationships we've had together and, you know, try to form a collective to, to, you know, create value in the business founders of tomorrow. Yeah, that's that's definitely how we got here and, and <laughs> why we're doing this. But yeah, we're we're raising a you know thirty million dollar target fund. Um, we're focused on early stage companies. We're looking to invest in probably thirty to thirty five companies. And yeah, that we're not a spray and pray fund. We're focused on deals that you know we can help the founders and also mitigate risk for our investors by you know either opening up our network to these companies um, and plugging them into to. Uh, you know, other businesses or relationships that we've formed that will expedite, you know, their growth because these are early stage businesses. And yeah, we hope we can create a really meaningful fund. Yeah, it's funny because when uh, I did a call yesterday with a friend of ours who's, you know, a really successful founder and he was, you know, we did one deal uh, where we led the round uh, with True Ventures and one of the first deals we did through the fund with Loan Snap. And I guess this billionaire, I don't, I don't even know who he was, he wouldn't tell me who it was, uh, emailed him the you know press newsletter he got about this and wrote lol i guess everybody's got a fun now and you know and, and i was like i, I wasn't I actually yeah burn i wasn't actually offended at all because like i understand how like optically that you know it's like what are they doing in this space you know what i mean and right. you know and and i think that you wouldn't be a mean person to think that the first time you saw this but that's kind of what's also so exciting because we've always been underdogs in our career and, you know, and that's like, I love being in that position because that's when you don't expect us to come through and, you know, knock you out because, you know, and, but that's also what I, where we have so much opportunity because I think it's about leveraging something incredible that, you know, we've been creating for years and, and helping people and relating to them in ways that like some VCs potentially can't. And, you know, I don't expect everyone to understand that or know that until they know us and 
the family that we've created. But uh, but I, I just laughed at that because I was like, yeah, you know, I know everyone is getting into VC. There's so much money. Well, you can, you, we got to send him the podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Curious how you've handled and like thought about the fundraising process itself, because that's typically a, I don't know, a new daunting thing for folks that haven't sure. done it. I'm curious if you guys have like enjoyed it or learned from it, excited about it, hate it. We are, we're, well, we're nearing the closing to our fund. Um, so we're right. excited now. And in the beginning, um, you know, we started fundraising probably a month ago and it was, uh, the first couple of calls, you're like, what am I doing? Right. You know, every, every, every time we, every deal we've done in the past has been Alex and my own money. Um, and right. now, you know, we, there's all these people that know us and, and, uh, respect our business acumen with how we've handled it in our own career and have insight into the investments that we made. And so they do understand where we're coming from, but you don't know if they're going to be, they put their money where their mouth is and actually write you a check. So um, I think, you know, obviously <laughs> the pitch refines itself over time, but what really has resonated with most uh, of the LPs that we've, uh, you know, got commitments from is just being genuine and being like, this is, this is our deal. This is who we are. This is where we started, similar to the story we told you about, you know, from the hype machine days to kind of how we recreated the release strategy to cater to our fans. Um, and that's kind of gives insight into who we are as business people and, and how we, uh, you know, add value to our own our own businesses and, um, you know, talk about the deals we've done in the past and then say, look, this is what we're trying to do. Oh, you know, we know all the aspects of how a fund works and and we can do this. And, and you know, obviously they're, taking a chance investing in a first time fund, but um, we're going after people that fully understand that. And, you know, this is live or die for us again, you know, another one of those situations where we have an amazing opportunity to build a multi-generational business that's going to be involved in helping companies that are going to help the entire world. And, and, you know, we can really only go ask, uh, we can do a fundraise one time if you, if you mess it up. So, you know, just being honest and, and, and genuine and, and just removing any type of fluff and just putting yourself out there and being vulnerable, I think has gone a long way for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. Areas of interest. Like I know I was, I was just digging around. I know you guys have done some stuff in blockchain. It sounds like you guys with Ember have done some stuff around like physical products. Yeah. What are your kind of areas of interest or things that yeah. you're most excited about? We're, we're really looking at the, the consumer as a vertical. You know, it's the area that we understand the most. Uh, you know, we've been selling <laughs> selling services and products for a while now. Um, and I think yeah. that's where we can have the biggest advantage um, for our investors. So that's kind of what we're looking at, you know, and that could apply to fintech. You know, I think you mentioned blockchain. I think it's a fantastic technology, but I think it has to be used in a consumer forward facing way um, where you don't know that you're abusing blockchain, you know, because that that I think is where the, the, the platform will su- technology will succeed. Brand stuff is interesting to us as the chain smokers. I don't think it's something we're going to really focus on so much through the fund just because, pro- you know, we're not trying to use the chain smokers as like a promotional marketing thing right, for like, right, right, for right. like sock companies. I always use socks as an example. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, we really love, you know, services that are going to change the world that, that identify a problem in a business sector of business that, that exists. And is is going after a way to fight it. You know, we're we're very analytical, and we have a really well-rounded team, like Drew said. That everyone looks at the you know every potential investment very differently, um, which is really great because you know you don't want to just always be looking for reasons for it to succeed. You really need to look at all the reasons why it would not succeed. 
And, you know, and, and again, like pulling on this, this amazing group of LPs that we've, uh, we've had commitments from to use their expertise. And that we really want to curate a team of people, a collective that we can, you know, we might not be the smartest guys in the room. And Drew and I say, know this for the fact. We know we're not the smartest guys in the room, but we are the most charming and we are the, like very humble. So we look to people for advice to help guide us. So we, uh, when we make a decision, we really understand the haystack to find the needle. Mm-hmm. And but yeah, consumer stuff, Gen, Gen Z, millennial is a huge focus of ours. You know, their spending power is immense. They're like 40 percent of spending in the economy. And, you know, they're going to define the services and apps and important, you know, companies that are tomorrow. And I think, you know, that's a predominantly what our fan base is made out of. So being able to identify those trends uh, is going to be a huge advantage for us. And, and those are the types of founders that we that we are interested in. How about music? I mean, music is like aside, you know, Spotify aside has been a notoriously difficult place to build software and technology companies. I'm curious, given all your experience using these platforms over the years, how you think about maybe investing in it or or not investing in it. Yeah, we uh, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, Spotify is an outlier there. And that is it's it's a really tough space, um, especially at a time like this. Um, You know, you don't know how many virtual live show platforms we've been pitched it's insane right. there's something we have right. seen which is which is kind of funny because we're pretty we're pretty bearish on it uh, mainly for the reason that that would go against our main source of touring income uh, <laughs> but uh, right. but i don't know i don't think that there have been people that have done really incredible things like uh the travis scott Fortnite concert was something that i can see people paying for i know bts did something crazy they did they did a virtual concert that was really really well done um, and they sold something like 70,000 tickets. I saw Tomorrowland and apparently they had a, a million paying co- uh, customers. So that's that's there and it exists. We look at a lot of those deals, but it, you're right. It's very hard to find one that seems like a real winner um, in, this, in, in the music space specifically. So so yeah, it's it's one thing that I wish there was more opportunity in, but you know, and we're also super, you know, we have like that's we, that we know the most about. So we're, we're, you know, when we get these opportunities, we're not just doing them because we are musicians and our, our value add is obvious. Um, we're usually much more in the, have the opposite state of mind, which is this probably won't work because we know everything else that does exist in this space. Right. And I guess as musicians yourselves, you probably are maybe the most skeptical yeah. uh, of, of, of anyone <laughs> in terms of looking at products in the space. So uh, just last question, how, how do you guys think about I guess your careers as musicians and also Mantis long-term and, you know, are you as committed to both as ever? Do you imagine yourselves like long-term hanging up the music cleats and, you know, becoming full-time investors? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm really curious myself. I mean, music, I always make this really shitty, (laughs) paint this really shitty picture of like, if you think of a galaxy, like music is our sun, you know what I mean? Everything revolves around our music, all the opportunities we've had, uh, have been created through that platform and we love it. I mean, it's like our, not only a creative thing, it's a business thing and it's how we express ourselves. And that's always going to be very important to Drew and me. And, you know, there's no feeling like playing live in front of, a, you know, your fans and, and hearing people connect yeah. with your music. That said, you know, this fund is like planet earth for us right now, you know, that we live and breathe on this planet. And, you know, I don't want to say it needs the sun to survive, but, you know, it, this is where this is where we are right now. And I mentioned it earlier, but, you know, we don't take on projects that we don't feel like are intrinsic to what we are and who we're doing that already don't already naturally fit into the, the world we've created. You know, we, we are part owners in a tequila brand. You know, tequila is a huge part of our show. And 
starting a new alcohol, you know, new alcohol is a very challenging process, but it's not if it's already such a big part of what you're already doing, you know, going to venues, hospitality, you know, entertaining people. So, you know, in TV and film, we have a TV and film production company that's doing so well. You know, we score movies. TV and film inspires us more than anything, um, lyrically and musically. So for us, it's like, well, you know, we're excited. We want to do, you know, we want to have a fourth and fifth generation of this fund. Um, and we want to keep making albums and performing. And, and I don't think you, we have to choose one or the other. Um, hopefully they both can thrive. You know, I think that our fund, you know, obviously right now there's not a lot of touring going on. So we could focus on the other businesses a lot. But I don't think that's going to change when things come back online because we're just seeing our, our touring as an opportunity to meet more people and entertain them and create, you know, opportunities through these different channels for the investments that we make. And, you know, and that's how we plan to use it because that's how we got here to this day right now. So, you know, we'll see. But I mean, we're pretty like aggressive guys. Like I get it. We, I don't see us like kicking back ever. <laughs> like I'm going to die in my, die on, you know, in my chair working on my laptop probably. <laughs> that's fair. Drew, anything to add? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, it's very, it's impossible to say, you know, what the balance will be, but you know, I love the idea of us. I mean, we've been touring 180 days a year for the past eight years, and I would like to have a less stressful relationship with our touring career. And I think that means like spending our time doing other things like this and, you know, just stepping back and just like kind of, we, we, we've done that and we've had that moment and we want to continue to be, you know, progressive and relevant in the music space. And that's something that we, we will forever do just because that's why we started was our love for music. I mean, that got us here. But yeah, I mean, this is something that we also equally love. And uh, I think there's time for both. And I think that they are symbiotic. And yeah, I, I'm really excited for our future. But yeah, no, t no telling what the balance will be. Cool. Um, well, thank you both so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. This was so much fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my last word would be like, you know, we're so excited about this. I'm really, you know, there's no company we don't want to look at. We're interested in learning everything. And, you know, I, I think the fundraising part, like, as you know, the <laughs> fellow VC is exciting. But, you know, the second you get that commitment, it's just focus shifts entirely to the investment side. Yeah. And I can't wait to, to see all the opportunities that are out there and meet other people in the VC space as well because you know it's all about that deal flow and it's really cool i mean we're, i can't believe how like welcoming and small the community is but big at the same time yeah well excited to collaborate with you guys and thanks again for doing this super appreciate it and yeah excited to do some deals and and, and it's like a mixtape it's like you can get find me at instagram.com backslash chase pokers thanks guys so much all right cheers yeah this podcast was created by notation Notation is a first-check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Carta for being our title sponsor. I'm sure you're familiar with Carta. Carta changed the way private companies manage their cap tables and 409A valuations. Companies and venture firms like Robinhood, Flexport, and USV use Carta to manage billions of dollars in equity. Carta also offers fund administration services for investors now. We use Carta at Notation and recommend it to all our companies. Save time running your back office with Carta. Get 10% off at carta.com slash notation. Terms and conditions apply.
We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.